Imagine massive floods sweeping through the countryside. Cities suddenly find themselves under several feet of water. If the authorities have enough warning, they do their best to get people out of their houses to prevent them from being trapped. They drive around parts of the city announcing that trouble is approaching and that people should leave at once. They make announcements on local radio and television stations. The Alberta emergency alert system goes off on everyone's phone and this room is a cacophony. This imminent danger demands urgent action. Now, I don't know about everybody in this room, but I am really bad at responding to alarms, not just the snooze button, but when the Alberta emergency alert goes off on my phone, my first goal is to shut it off because I assume it's just them testing the system. When the fire alarm goes off here at church, my first instinct is to go to our fire alarm panel, check out what zone is going off, and to head there, because I assume it's just a false alarm or a bad sensor. When I sprayed pesticides, I worked on several oil and gas plants, chemical processing facilities, uh, yeah, spraying pesticides, and many of these plants have an evacuation alarm that's tested once a week, uh, or on some of them even once per day. And every time we're working and that alarm would go off, we just kind of assume it was fine because everyone else kept working that was in the area around us. Now, I don't know how all of you respond when an alarm goes off. Perhaps you, you bust into action, your emergency response plan kicks in, or you start running all the scenarios of what could be happening in your head. However, I think that most of us in this room would assume an alarm is false if it came from a man with long hair and raggedy clothes wandering around outside, eating bugs, shouting, the end is nigh, disaster is coming, prepare for the end. Most of us would roll our eyes. We might cross the streets to avoid them, and at best, we'd probably ignore the warnings coming, and at worst, we would probably mock the person who was giving them. But as we continue through the book of Luke, and as we explore the character of John the Baptist, this is exactly what we see. Matthew 3 tells us that John's clothes were made out of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. People went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. So not only is John not treated with derision, people from all over the land travel to hear him, to hear his message, to hear him speak, and to, to heed the warnings that he brings. What is this message? It's that the word of God has come, repent and be baptized. Right? The word of God has come, repent and be baptized. And it's this message of John's is, is his proclamation that ultimately sets the stage for Jesus to come into ministry. But this message isn't only a precursor to Jesus. It's not only before Jesus' arrival. This same message is repeated throughout the New Testament. In Matthew 28, 19, and 20, it's Jesus' final words to the disciples. He says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There's a call to repentance and a call to baptism. 
In Acts 2, 38, Peter's message of Pentecost, it says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right, this idea of repentance paired with baptism comes before Jesus through John. It comes from the mouth of Jesus, and it's repeated by the disciples as they start the early church. And so together, we're going to take the next 30 minutes or so and dive into Luke chapter 3 and explore these themes of the word coming, of repentance, and of baptism. Luke will be in Luke 3, 1 to 22. Luke is towards the beginning of the New Testament, which is in the latter half of your Bible. Uh, feel free to turn there in your Bible or your Bible app or follow along on the screen behind me uh, or online. It'll be there as well. Uh, Luke 3, 1 to 2. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, the Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, the Tetrarch of Eturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Anna and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar puts us around AD 29. Tiberius became the emperor of Rome in AD 14. Uh, Pontius Pilate, the second character mentioned, was the governor of Judea from AD 26 to AD 36. Herod Antipas was tetrarch, uh, ruling the region of Galilee from about 4 BC to AD 39. Uh, Annas was the high priest of the Jewish temple from AD 6 to about AD 15, but maintained this title as a, an honorific afterwards. And Caiaphas served from AD 18 to AD 36. Luke is giving us an exact historical moment an exact historical context for which his gospel starts. Luke, out of all the gospel writers, tends to write in a way that gives you a lot more historical context, gives you very specific details that line up with the Roman historical record and the Jewish historical record. And so in the year AD 29, in the Roman Empire, in Judea, in the province of Galilee, under the Jewish high priest Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah. If you are with us throughout the month of December, you may remember Zechariah from Luke chapter 1. For an angel appears to Zechariah and tells him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. And he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. The word of God has come to John puts him in the light of many of the Old Testament prophets. And when we look at Jewish history, devout Jews had been longing for a word from God. And this is a, it's an amazing event since the word of God has not come on any prophet since around 460 BC. So after a silence of almost 500 years, God once again is speaking to his people. He 
John went into all the country around the Jordan. He was preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth and all people will see God's salvation. The quotation here is from Isaiah 40, verses three to five. It it proclaims the Lord himself is coming to bring salvation to his people. But not only to to his people, as we read in Isaiah, we see that, that all people will experience God's salvation. And as we see throughout the gospels and into the book of Acts, The salvation that John is proclaiming and the the salvation that he is proceeding is not just salvation for the Jews from the Roman Empire, as many of them anticipated, but it's a salvation for all people from their sins. And the word coming is not just the Holy Spirit coming onto John to proclaim preparation for the kingdom of God. Later in this passage, we see John proclaiming the Messiah, the literal word of God, Jesus. This is in Luke uh, 3.15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. If you grew up in a church circle and if you're a Christian, you probably associate the word Messiah with Jesus. But for the Jews, Messiah was kind of this figure they were looking towards. It was this promised deliverer of the Jewish nation prophesied throughout the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament. And many Jews thought this would be a new king like King David, a great ruler who would unite them and help overthrow the Roman Empire and that they would once again be freed from that oppression. And they wonder if John, this mysterious wild man who speaks with authority, who has the power and the word of God, they wonder if he is this leader. The word of God has come, so he's empowered by the Holy Spirit, just like many of the great prophets and kings and judges throughout Israel's history. But John points to Jesus. He says, he who is mightier than I, he who is is greater than I, he who is more powerful than I is coming. And this greater person will baptize you not only with water, but with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's answer points towards the coming of the Holy Spirit that we see at Pentecost in Acts chapter two, where tongues of fire appear above the heads of disciples and they begin to speak in multiple languages. And that moment is the beginning of the eruption of the church throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. It is with this purifying fire that the people are cleansed and empowered for ministry, to evangelize, to spread the gospel, to stand strong in the face of adversity. 
But from John's writings, there's a, a second aspect to this fire. That second aspect is judgment. And it's fire not only to, to purify, but it's also a fire to purge. The image uh, in verse 17 of a, a winnowing fork is very agrarian. It's a farming term you might not be familiar with, but uh, in the ancient Near East, they would take harvested wheat and they would take this fork and they would toss the wheat in the air. And the heavier wheat would fall and the lighter chaff or the, the casing of the wheat would blow away in the wind. This was their way to, to separate the good wheat from the lighter chaff. And then they could take the chaff that had blown away and dispose of it by burning it. And so the word of God, the Holy Spirit has come to John. And as he points towards Jesus, the, the incarnate word of God. And now in our time, we have both the Holy Spirit and we have the Bible, the written word, and we have the fire of the Holy Spirit. It's a fire that purifies those who turn and repent and it's a fire that burns up and consumes that which has been separated from the good wheat. And how we experience that fire is up to us. I came across a, a comic this week as I was doing some sermon prep, and it's a man sitting on his bed. He's pondering the vastness of the universe. Is God real? What's my purpose in life? Can God hear me? And so he asks aloud, looking at the sky, God, what must I do to be saved? And in the comic, these big, bold, all cap letters of coming from the sky, this bellowing voice of God says, feed the hungry, write injustice, work for peace. And the man on the, the bed sitting there, he responds, oh, I, I was just testing. And the sky responds, oh, me too. This idea gets to the nature of repentance. Repentance is not merely words, it's not merely a state of being, but it's a continual change of our minds, our spirits, and our actions to be more in line with the nature and the character of Jesus. We can explore how, how John tackles this idea. This is Luke 3, 7 uh, to 9. John said to the crowds that were coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The ax is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Right, we read in, in Matthew chapter 3. Uh, which is a parallel to this story, that this brood of vipers comment was directed to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious leaders of the day. And they were coming out from the cities. They're like, what's this John guy doing? And this is really strong language for John to use in response to them. And in our lifetime, in our context, we probably go, oh, hey, calling somebody a snake. Oh, they're slimy. They're conniving. They're generally unpleasant to be around. Right, we think, oh, I gotta be wary around that person. But if we remember the context that John is speaking into, right, if you're a, a religious leader for the Jewish people and you think of a snake, you don't think of a slimy person. You think of the serpent in the Torah, the snake in the Garden of Eden, of, of Satan. John is calling them deceitful, 
dangerous, hypocritical, with minds and actions that line more up with Satan than the God that they claim to serve. It's harsh language. John continues that we need to produce fruit in keeping with repentance and to not say to ourselves, oh, we've got Abraham as a father. And this statement relates both to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but also to all of the Jewish people that are coming out to experience what John is teaching. Right? The Jews are God's chosen people. And as you can tell through the many genealogies in the Bible that I'm sure none of you skip, the Jewish people all relate themselves to their Jewish heritage, back to their tribes through Jacob and Isaac and Abraham, to where God made his original covenant for them to be his people. But John comes with with a new challenge. Produce fruit based on your repentance and don't rely on your heritage. Don't rely on your bloodline because in this kingdom to come, in this new era, your bloodline isn't enough. It doesn't matter if you're a Levite or a Benjaminite or or anything, and it doesn't matter how quickly you can trace your heritage back to Abraham. What matters is the fruit of your life. So don't rely on, on who you know. Don't rely on who you are. It doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian. It doesn't matter if you call yourself a Christian. It doesn't matter that you grew up in a Christian country or a Christian home or vote for a Christian political party. It doesn't matter if your mom or your dad or your great-grandfather was a Christian. It doesn't matter if you're in Pastor Dave's small group, that you're a church member, or that you call Ellerslie or any other church your home church. It doesn't matter if your life is based on, on Christian values. If we have not personally responded to the offer of, of forgiveness found by coming to Jesus, then no baptism, no amount of church attendance, and no history of Jesus Christ in our family can substitute. Right? Nothing can substitute for us turning to Jesus with an awareness that he provides forgiveness of our sin and changing our lives because of that. The ax cuts down the tree that does not bear fruit, no matter the roots that it has. And so if we want to bear fruit of repentance, what does that look like? Often we think of repentance as an action, something more akin to confession than anything else. We say, hey God, I'm sorry, I'm going to try and stop doing whatever it is I've been doing, whatever it is that, that doesn't please you. But repentance is much deeper than this verbal idea Right, the Greek word for repentance, metanoia, means a change of mind. And John preaches in the manner of the Old Testament prophets, whose language and their end goal was often seeking a turning of the heart. And John tells us to to bear fruit, keeping in line with repentance. So what is repentance? Repentance concerns the turning of the mind, of the heart, and of one's actions to be more in line with the nature and the character of Jesus. What does this practically look like? John gives us a a few examples that are relevant to us today. Uh, This is in verse 11. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. 
Then some soldiers asked him, what, and what should we do? And he replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. This is the fruit of repentance. Right? This is the outflow of a life that is being shaped like Jesus. That we would give out of our wealth to those with little. That we would live honestly and that we would not take advantage of others. And what's kind of mind-blowing about this passage is that none of this should be surprising to the people. Nothing that John teaches here is new, right? To, to care for the poor and the downtrodden and the widow and the orphan and the refugee are all biblical ideas, ideals. Right? Two specific notes that John gives are for tax collectors and for soldiers. Tax collectors, much like today, collected taxes and, and tariffs and the like, but they were notoriously dishonest. Kind of like every phone call you get from the Canada Revenue Agency asking for gift cards, right? Very dishonest. But these tax collectors, when they went out and they were collecting fees and fines from different people and collecting their taxes, they would add additional fees to pad their own pockets. So an extra 5% here, a 5% here, and they scrape it off the top. Right, for the soldier, the command is, is similar. It's not a, a ban on working for Rome or being employed by the Roman Empire, although most Jews probably would have been working for the provincial leader over Galilee. Rather, the command from John is for them to work honestly. And for the Jewish people, if somebody was a tax collector or a soldier and had gone to work for Rome or was working on behalf of Rome, it was kind of like betraying your people. It's like, oh, that guy's working for the enemy. And for people in those positions, they'd often go there, but they would take the hit socially with their peers, but they would take it for personal financial gain. And so when we take these three ideas, to give up what we have, to work honestly, to be content with what we have, we end up with this generalized call from these verses to not abuse power. The so-called golden rule that we read in the Bible is treat others the way that you want to be treated. It's spoken by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But at its root is this idea that you need to treat others as equal. Right? Other humans as humans. When we dehumanize people, when we dehumanize others, when we see them as other or lesser or less than human or less deserving of respect and of love and of support... That is at the root of us sinning against them, of us sinning against other people. When these tax collectors and when these soldiers would abuse power, they had to see the people they were extorting as less deserving of their money, less deserving of themselves, of their resources. And it's really easy for us to point fingers at characters in the Bible that do this. It's also really easy to point to people in third world countries where there may be more of a physical power differential where children work for poverty wages in factories and where women don't have the right to speak for themselves. But here in, in North America and here in Edmonton, there are many subtle ways that we can abuse our power, whether it's financial power or cultural power, social power. One commentator on this passage had this to say. He said, first world abuse often takes the form of asking people to do more than is healthy for their families in light of the requirements of the business. First world abuse may not be honoring a workman with wages that reflect his contribution, while people at the top take in more than they deserve. 
First world abuse in the church constantly takes advantage of well-meaning volunteers without even once stopping to thank them genuinely or offer some type of concrete recognition for their labor. First world abuse at societal levels may leave those without money with little voice, while those who have resources can lobby the rich and the powerful. If John condemns the practices recorded here for the Roman world, then he also condemns the more subtle forms of abusive position in ours. True repentance calls us to give up the power that we abuse, to recognize others around us as human, to not treat them as lesser than, and to genuinely and humbly serve them. It's not just turning away from our sinful behavior, it's living outwardly with a view and a care for others with the same vein of the love and care that God has. Only then can our actions, the outflow of our repentance, line up with the character and the nature of Jesus Christ. We're called to repent, but we're also called to be baptized. It says in verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven and said, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. If you grew up in the church, you're probably familiar with baptism, but there's no real cultural parallel outside of the church for us. But for the Jewish people, there was. Right? Dipping and, and washing ritually in water was becoming increasingly common. There's a lot of precedent in the Old Testament for ritual or ceremonial cleansing. But this more regular baptism of repentance wasn't the norm. Certain groups in the desert, potentially where John the Baptist was associated with, practiced this idea of confession and baptism as a way to join into their communities. And they would practice regular baptism alongside that. But there's actually a much better parallel than these ideas of ritual or ceremonial cleansing or confession. Right? Baptism, along with circumcision and the offering of a sacrifice, marked the full conversion of a proselyte into Judaism. That is to say, baptism, circumcision, and repentance allowed for a non-Jew to enter into the Jewish religious experience. Now, what's a little bit crazy here is that the Jews were going out to John to experience the same baptism. Almost as if they were saying, I need to be baptized to enter into something beyond this Jewish religious life. There's something more than what I'm currently experiencing. Now, a lot of times as we read this passage, we also have to ask the question, why was Jesus baptized? He was without sin, so he did not need to go through baptism as a means of repentance or cleansing or conversion. Uh, that's true, but there's, there's several reasons or several ideas that can all kind of fit in here together. Number one, Jesus is our example. Jesus sets the example for us in baptism. In baptism, Jesus foreshadows his death going under the water and his resurrection coming back out of it. Repentance means to become a disciple. And Jesus repents not in the sense of turning away from sin, but in the sense of dedicating himself to follow God's will fully on this earth. For Jesus' baptism signals the inauguration of his mission 
as the obedient son of God and of his model of what it means to be faithful to God. Number five, in baptism, Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, a theme which carries on throughout Luke and especially in the book of Acts. We can hear a continuation of John's disciples in the book of Acts in Acts 19. Well, Apollos, who was a co-worker of Paul's in missions, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we have not even heard that there is a spirit. And so Paul asked them, then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. And Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. Right, a, a baptism of repentance points us towards the baptism of the Holy Spirit, of purification with fire, of being empowered for ministry, and of living fully in new, a new life as a new person. These disciples in the book of Acts, they knew of John's call to repentance and to turn away from sin, but they had not yet heard about Jesus. They had not yet heard about the Holy Spirit. They had not yet heard about this new life that they were being called into. And so as we sit here, January 2nd, 2022, at the beginning of a new year, you might have made some resolutions or plans or, or set goals for this next year, or maybe you're still in the process of putting some of those things together. But today I want to challenge you that these three things should be at the center of your plans. Baptism, repentance, and the word. If you haven't yet accepted Jesus, the word of God who has come, the one that went to the cross and died for your sins, if you haven't yet accepted that Jesus wants to be in a life-changing relationship with you, then I want to invite you to take a moment now and accept him. If you'd like, you can come talk to myself or one of our other staff after the service, and we'd love to pray with you. If you're not ready to take that step of accepting Jesus right now, or if you're still figuring out what it means to live in this new life, to live out as a new believer, then I want to invite you to Alpha. Alpha starts in just a few weeks, and it's a course where you can explore questions like, who is Jesus? Is there more to life to this? And if you're searching for answers, I think this is one of the best ways that you can have great, meaningful conversations about it. It starts on January 23rd during our service, our 11:15 service. If you want to take a new step in repentance, start with acknowledging your sins. Find someone who you can confess to, someone who can hold you accountable. Join a small group or a triad so you can have people around you that can be those people for you. As you go deeper and want to move from just acknowledging your sin and confessing and begin to shape your life differently, I encourage you to find ways to change your mind, your heart, and your actions. There are several great Bible in a Year reading plans. The Bible in a Year app is great. There's a number of plans on version. Right, our, our actions are changed as our hearts are changed, as our mind changes. So we want to make sure that we are filling our mind with the things of God. Commit this year to read through the whole Bible or to read a piece of it each day to build that foundation of knowledge. If you want to do the Bible in one year, you're only one day behind, so it's pretty easy to catch up. 
If you're not serving, and I don't necessarily mean here at Ellerslie, but serving somewhere in a way that humbles you and blesses others, that could be upstairs in our kids' ministry. It could be backstage with some of our tech and broadcast people. It could be serving care kits with young adults. It could also be serving with Hope Mission or other groups in our city to bless other people. I encourage you to find time this year to do that. I know you're busy. You've got kids and sports and work and family commitments and everything else that takes up your time. And so even if you can't commit to serving weekly, find ways that you can serve others. Talk to somebody here at the, uh, uh, one of our staff about serving here at the church or finding other organizations in our city you can serve with. If you haven't yet been baptized, there is a tank in the stage right there, and we would love to raise our water bill by filling it each and every week. If you haven't taken the step of baptism, of symbolically dying to yourself and being raised in Christ, come find myself or Dave or Joel after the service and talk with one of us. We'd love to baptize you, everyone in your small group, your friends, your family, and to have conversations about that. So talk to one of our staff. Go to the Connect booth in the foyer after the service and find what some next steps might be. Fill out a Connect card that's in the seat back in front of you. Fill out a Connect card online at erbc.ca slash connect. Whatever your next step might be, whatever your, your goal might be this year, whether it's baptism or serving or alpha or just talking with a pastor, joining a triad to be accountable, find what that next step is. We want to help you live differently this year. We want to help you to step fully into this new life that we're being called into. And my prayer for all of us is that as a community and as a church, we would all become more like Jesus this year. The word of God has come. Repent and be baptized. Live differently because of who you are being called to be. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you have come. We thank you, Jesus, that you have come and died on a cross to bear the burden of our sins, and that you were raised and defeated death, that we might live in new life as new creation, as new beings no longer bound to our sins. And so God, this year, 2022, as we move forward, I ask that you would be with us, that each one of us would have an encounter with you, and that at the end of this year, as we look back on where we have been and where we've come, that each one of us in this room would say, I look differently now than I did on January 2nd. That I look more like Jesus this year because of the things I did, because of the relationships I had, the serving I did, and the steps I took to repent and to look more like Jesus each and every day. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.